Psst, before you stick this in your ears, know this. The content presented in this show is designed for a mature audience with a functioning sense of humor. If you are not an adult, are easily offended, or take life too seriously, this is not the show for you. For everyone else, let's go for a ride. No, I told you, this is my place. Go away. Or else. Come with me, we'll go for a ride. Don't be afraid. The Ninth Story Once upon a time, in a land far, far away, lived a giant, a mouse, and two chimps on a davenport. One day, the first chimp said to the other, We should make talk a lot about movies here on the ninth story one of our favorite forms of storytelling but it's the first time we've actually brought in filmmakers to talk about the actual process of making a movie so for today's episode we have john and chris nespozinski they represent half of orchard place productions the other two members are chris murphy and raymond jelly john and chris came in to talk about their locally made film the other side I actually had an opportunity to see an advanced screening of the movie, and it was fantastic. We also have, as part of the interview, a little segment of John Russo discussing scoring a movie. In the studio today... I have John and Chris Nespazinski. I always get nervous trying to pronounce that name. You nailed it. Fantastic. So you guys are going to be like the Coen brothers of the horror genre, right? Well, you know, we had done comedies and stuff before, and while that's fun, um, I don't think it's going to pay the bills until you get some sort of name for yourself. So it seems to be that horror is the way to go, and we kind of really enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah I think our, our go-to genre ultimately is going to be horror comedy. I think that's our wheelhouse. We have a few scripts that are uh, in the works that we're anxious to do something with. And I think that's going to be our warehouse mixing up uh, kind of the dark comedy, you know, with the horror element. Those are always good. So why don't you identify yourselves? Because most people may, well, some people will know your voices. Some may. I am John. I was the principal producer on the film. I basically was the fireman, put all the fires out, had to figure out how to solve any problem that came up as quickly and cheaply as possible. He and, was the lightning rod. Yeah, and keep... <laughs> I, I was also the buffer, the shield, uh, yeah. that kept all the bullets away from uh, the talent and the, uh, the directors. So that was, uh, that was my primary job, to be the glue behind the scenes. And I'll let Chris talk about himself. Well, you notice how he said talent and directors, which completely just... <laughs> 
<laughs> skip right over the talent of them. the directors. Yes. That's right. <laughs> and I am Chris Nesbazinski. I was the uh, screenwriter of The Other Side as well as co-director and editor as well. Nice. I'd like to add that, you know, <clears throat> John and I are only one part of Orchard Place Productions. Right. Uh, we also have uh, the co-director, Ray Mongelli, and uh, our, our other partner, Chris Murphy, who also plays the mayor in the film. Brilliantly. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to, you know, throw that out there oh, so that people understand that, you know, it's not just us uh, right. that, that, that made this film. You know, we there's quite a few creative There's minds. layers and layers yes. behind that, yeah. Yes. So, how did you guys get started in doing film and movie? I know you guys did some short projects before, right? Oh, gosh. I, I went to a semester of film school back when I was 19 years old and uh, had a child, put that dream on hold for many, many years. Yeah. Uh, joined the military, you know, tried to have life. Just one day, you know, I was like, I, I, I want to try it again and just tried shooting short films. But prior to that, I had been writing as well, you know, screenplays. Uh, everybody's first screenplay is terrible. Mine was no exception, that's for sure. What was it about? Oh, <laughs> it was called One More Time. It was about a, a former 80s rock star who was just about to hit it big. Mm -hmm. And uh, the grunge revolution came and just shut him down. And then he was parking cars for a living and then decided to get the old band back together and... Ah, it, it, was really, yeah. it was really it was overdone back yeah. together. <laughs> let's get the band back together that's awesome <laughs> yeah but uh, you know it, and it's all just learning reading books uh, right you know I'd recommend for writing it I'd recommend people buy the screenwriter's bible it actually teaches you from concept to sale and, and that's what I originally wanted to do is just write and sell screenplays but we decided to do a 48 hour film project and yeah just got the bug <laughs> After that, I guess so. So you weren't running around like with an old camera whenever you were a kid or anything like that. It wasn't like to that level. I, I did. Did yeah. you? Awesome. Yeah. You In, set up your GI Joes, I guess. Something <laughs> like that. Yeah. In the '80s, you know, when you had the uh, the first, I shouldn't say first video cameras, but you know the the ones that the consumer ones mm -hmm. that weighed about you know seventy pounds, <laughs> <laughs> and you had the recorder on the side that right. was connected to the. And so they were separate, and yeah, the, it just looked like crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, technology's miniaturized a lot of that now. Yes. You guys had some really cool equipment when you were working on this project, right? Yeah, uh, we shot with DSLRs, uh, Nikon D5200s. The short film, The Other Side, which mm -hmm. was what had gotten us to shoot the feature, mm -hmm. um, we had shot on a Nikon D5100 and really liked the look, mm -hmm. you know, the smoothness, the, the cinematic look about it, so we decided to go one better with the D5200. I'm acting like I know what you're talking about. People <laughs> listening will know because I'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know what you're talking about, but I know it looked cool whenever I saw the movie. Awesome. <laughs> um, the short was cool, too. So I, I, I enjoyed the way you guys expanded it into a full-length film. It was a nice payoff to see how you actually put that together. Awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. You guys both are into music and, and that sort of thing, right? Was that something you were into younger as well? I'll or? defer that one to John. <laughs> Yeah, though we're both musicians, I mean, his his primary passion was always film first, music second, and mine's always been the opposite, music first and film second, so it's actually a really good yeah. um, synergy there that we both have our interests that are in line with each other, but we have slight more passion one way or the other, so all the cinematic stuff, you know, always defer to him, and the sound music stuff falls into my lap, 
Uh, but growing up, we grew up with music in the house. We grew up on the Beatles and Stones and Zeppelin and all those bands. So yeah. and our, our, our father was a musician, and there were always yeah. musical instruments in the house. Nice. Drums, guitar, bass. It was all there. Right. So. Tons of vinyl, tons of instruments, so it was just natural to pick up a guitar or banging the drums, and yeah. we had that infused at a, a young age into us, and we carry that through today. We still play in bands and pretending we're not old and, <laughs> and trying to, to hold on for, for dear life to uh, whatever youth is left in our bones. But um, yeah, and with the film, sound being such a huge part of the film experience, it's something that I'm very passionate about with the scoring of the film, mm -hmm. the, uh, the sound. Um, the soundtrack and the music supervision aspect of film and finding the right song to plug into the right scene, which yeah. is, you know, very, it's a skill into unto itself. Right. And it was very fun to, um, and we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, about the local Pittsburgh music that we used, um, where to plug it into the film for maximum effect. Right. And I really enjoyed that process. And it's, it's a lot trickier than you may think. Uh, for five seconds of a, a sound clip, mm -hmm. you will take sometimes days to find the exact spot you want to slip that into. I, I have to say, I keep nodding along as if people were going to see me. Doing I do that, that too. <laughs> I, I've learned to start going, uh-huh. <laughs> because that's so weird for me to do that in a conversation. Like right. When you're looking at somebody face-to-face, -face, you're going to nod. And, and I've taught myself to go, uh-huh. Because the listeners can't see you nodding, as, uh -huh. as, as a friend told me. So that's an audio nod. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Exactly yeah. right. All right. So I did save some stuff from whenever John Russo was here visiting with us. And one of the things we did talk about was audio. You know, music is so important to mm -hmm. the tension and the pacing of the story. And... I, it had been a long time since I'd watched Night of the Living Dead, and the the, the music from that is definitely 1968 style music. Um, so yeah, just, or know, earlier, right? <laughs> exactly, uh, because Dan and I always we, we, we've had a couple of guests on the show, and we've talked about this before. You know, when you look at classic cinema genre, I always uh, the reference I always make to Dan is Gone with the Wind. Even in some of the most compelling dramatic scenes, the music is very flowery. 1930s, da, 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 right? Da, 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 it's, it's right. It's fanfare. <laughs> And you've got like something really <laughs> tragic happening, and um, you know, the Night of the mm -hmm. Living Dead was kind of the same way. And it was one of the things I wanted to kind of pick your brain about. It was like when you do, you know, as a screenwriter, <clears throat> and you know, what's what's your involvement been, and particularly in your involvement as a director and working on films, what you do, what you don't do in terms of soundtrack and scoring the music, and if you have a vision, you know, as Dan just said, when he writes, he has a particular music that he hears in the back mm -hmm. of his head and, and that type of thing but i hear lots of things well if i'm directing a movie then i have input to everything yeah and you know i, I i'm the boss and, <laughs> yeah uh, so yeah and i work try to work with the best people i can a lot of times i'm doing movies on low budget and so the score is going to be low budget as well, unfortunately, but you try to work with great people. Nelson mm -hmm. Harrison did a lot of the music on, uh, well, he did the supplementary music um, for Mob Boss and Soul Singer, but then I had the great music of Chuck Corby and Quiet Storm, and um, that's Chuck Corby and Tom DeJohn and Walt Laughlin, and um, so I chose the music. Sure. You know, from I knew pretty much the songs I was going to use in the movie and where they, I wrote them into that. But as far as Night of, Night of the Living Dead is concerned, um, 
We wanted to have an original score, but we couldn't afford it. <laughs> yeah. And we did things like messing around in our own recording studio, and we tried messing around with d- drums and ratchets to make weird sounds sure. and <laughs> stuff like that. Some of the stuff, uh, sound effects, uh, Carl Hardman and Marilyn Eastman did, like when I get the tire iron in the head. <laughs> that's right. That's a, you know, a tire iron going into a melon. <laughs> Nice. But but the music ended up. Uh, Carl uh, Hardman. They had it was Hardman Eastman Studios at that time, and they had the Capitol High Q uh, record library. That's where most of the music came from. And we really didn't like the idea of using canned music. Yeah. And uh, we but we bought. Uh, it was like fifteen hundred bucks for all the needle downs. But George Romero was very good at, at scoring himself, you know, I mean, of, of picking the right music, which we always had to do, because every TV spot and every industrial film and all the stuff we ever made, hundreds of different kinds of films, they all need scored. And you'd go out to the lab, WRS Motion Picture Lab in those days, and you would um, say what you wanted and show the the, uh, the sound guy um you know, there what, what what the spot looked like or what it was going to be. They would come up with choices, and then you had to pick the needle downs, and it yeah. better work. <laughs> but we but we all had good aesthetic sense, and so you know we were able to make things work. And the Night of the Living Dead, that music ended up working really well, and has a lot to do with the way George chose the tracks and edited them along with the so, picture. So did did you or did did George do did you guys do any music yourselves? Did you I mean aside from like you said you messed around with drums and some some sound effects and what well, did you guys not, ever score anything? Nothing we did. Uh, it's trying to trying to invent sounds mm-hmm. and put reverb on or play things backwards and all kinds of things we messed with, and none of it really made it. It yeah. just just didn't work. And the only reason I ask that, John, is because mm-hmm. you know. Um, Obviously, you know John Carpenter, mm-hmm. um, and and Carpenter, who you know, I I'm pretty sure that I've read that he was in. Obviously, he was inspired by your writing and Night of the Living mm-hmm. Dead, and he's always been a very big proponent of George Romero's work. And he scored his own stuff, and he you know very similar to what mm-hmm. you just described. Always low budget stuff at the get go when he made Halloween. Obviously, it was very low budget. Yeah, um, and I can recall from my childhood reading about his admiration for your work and for George Romero's work and obviously Night of the Living Dead I think is in I know it's in Halloween 2 I can't remember if it's actually on screen in the first Halloween as well but I was just curious because I know he took such a cue from you guys um, and I thought maybe uh, Carpenter got the idea too hey I'm going to score my own films based upon what you guys because mm, we really didn't yeah. I mean, <laughs> we, 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 we used Capital High Q mostly and I think there was another uh, Music library besides Capital High Q, and I can't recall which one he, right he now. He may have had less money than you guys did. No, well, what, the story I heard, and the, I don't—I never asked John about it. I know him, and I've interviewed him. You know, he's in some of my movie-making books, and I see him now and then, but we've never worked together. So I never asked him whether this is true or not. But the story that went around was that on the first uh, screening, you know, it had no score on it and nobody liked it and it just kind of died on the screen until he scored it he, he came up with that music I've, I heard he did it on a synthesizer right. so I don't know that's right so the, that's how important music is though oh, it absolutely. made those passages it gave the passages the suspense that they needed and obviously the movie went through the roof right. you know yeah. 
Do you have any similar experiences to that? Yeah, the, the big thing with us, obviously, you know, being an indie low budget film, we needed every penny we had and additional pennies that we didn't have. So we <laughs> yeah, obviously how that works. Yeah, we, we could not pay for music. So commercial music, meaning, you know, popular music was certainly not an option for us because that, that can get quite pricey to get a to get a song in a film, five, ten, twenty grand, you know, depending how popular the song is. Wow. And that's just one song. And so that was clearly not an option, which is really sad. I'm not going to tell you the name of the song or mm. the artist. Yeah. But there was a, a fairly popular uh, hard rock heavy metal song that we thought worked extremely well in the film that we put in just as a placeholder. Mm -hmm. And we knew that we could never use it. So that kind of <laughs> kind of broke our heart. But the, the plan was all along, you know, being a composer, as I was going to do the uh, sound design and the scoring and that type of the film. And I was not going to charge the project anything just as... You know, Chris did not take anything to direct. He did not take anything for a screenplay. And um, you guys will split the millions whenever it hits the big time. So it's an investment, right. and we we knew those things going in. We weren't taking money out now, so we could afford to pay our crew and everyone else, and our actors and whatnot, and feed them and all those yeah. that dress them and all the other important stuff. <laughs> but another mission of ours, being local Pittsburgh guys, was we wanted to really feature. Pittsburgh talent in the film as much as possible. Right. And that goes from crew to actors, but also, since we're on this subject, the soundtrack. Yeah. There are a lot of phenomenal bands in Pittsburgh that, you know, people outside of Pittsburgh may never have heard of. And this is an opportunity we felt to showcase that talent to hopefully further their careers yeah. and at least expose them to people potentially around the world. Being local musicians for 20 some years ourselves, we have a lot of friends and uh, cohorts in the uh, industry, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So just had to make a few quick calls, emails, or texts, or whatever you want to yeah. do these days, <laughs> and pull a favor or two, and they were all more than eager to jump on board. Nice. They were almost like, I didn't want to ask you, but ah, the I second gotcha. I broached it and asked them, they're like, yes. Yeah, but um, waiting for your call. Exactly. And that cost us zero dollars. That was all in their own time and their own dime. Now, of course... They're going to put those songs on their own CDs and yeah. and everything else, but they did it with the intention of being very specific to the movie. I asked them, knowing their styles and the type of music that they wrote and performed, I would give them, I want this to be very slow and sludgy, or I want this to be very upbeat and rocking or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they took that to the back of the rehearsal places and wrote it and recorded it based on that, and they did a phenomenal job. But yeah, there's four songs featured in the film. Local bands recorded and wrote specifically for the movie, which is really cool. Excellent. And then, so that means you guys would have a soundtrack, essentially, too. Yes, and the rest of the soundtrack are songs that were already written and recorded on various CDs from these local artists that we also incorporated in the film. So all in all, there's about ten different artists um, either directly in Pittsburgh or have direct Pittsburgh roots. Like a good friend of ours, Ryan, uh, is a Pittsburgh musician who moved to L.A., um, but he's still a Pittsburgh at heart, and he's yeah. featured on the soundtrack as well. Excellent. All the um, the sound design and the scoring, all that was done in my home studio. Uh, once we got the rough cut of the film together, I started going through it and took notes on what I wanted to accomplish with each scene. Mm -hmm. And one of our goals going into it was we didn't want to go over the top with the music. Right. Uh, because one thing about the film that's really important Though it's a zombie flick, it's not what I would call a classic horror film. It's not just about the blood and the guts right. and the scares. Mm -hmm. um, we, we tried to inject that in there, certainly, because you want to appeal to the, the zombie fan base, so to speak. But really, at, at its core, it's a drama 
and a thriller about a family it just so happens to be in the zombie apocalypse. Right. And all these other things are thrown into it. So we really wanted the emotion of the performances of the actors to shine. And a lot of that was simply staying out of the way of those performances and having a minimalist approach to the scoring mm -hmm. and only ramp it up significantly when there's really a lot of action happening that warrants it. Right. When the sound's not right, you don't notice it. That's, exactly. That's the biggest compliment. You know what? I didn't even notice the music. Right. Because it falls into the background and it becomes a part of the scene. Yeah. The analogy I would draw for our sports fans that are listening is music is the offensive lineman of a movie. If they do their job, the experience is great and you don't even know they exist. But when they hold and they kick and they bite and they make mistakes and the quarterback gets sacked, everybody notices it and you fall on your face. So there's one you probably never heard before. <laughs> so... How closely did you guys work together to to come up with the sound design? I mean, did he play stuff for you to listen to and you just run with it? Or how did well, that work? We, we've always had a, a strange connection when it comes to that. Uh, you guys we, are they're twins, right? Yeah. Uh, five years apart twins. That's yes. right. <laughs> he just hung out in there. He's like, it's nice in here. I'm not coming out. It explains a lot, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, we have this sort of weird connection where... Uh, when we did the 48-hour film projects, you know, for mm -hmm. a couple of years, he wouldn't even see the film because you have to write, direct, and edit in 48 hours. Yeah, you don't hours. have much time, so you better have right. a good connection with whoever. Yeah, and it was like, you. you know, look, this is a, this is the story we came up with. This is the script. This is the tone of the film that we're going to shoot tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. So tomorrow, while we're shooting, you work on some music and send it off to me, and it fit perfectly, almost to the second. And this is really hasn't been that much different, other than you know we've had more time to do it. Right. And. uh you know, he would say, this is what I'm hearing during this scene, because we had already had a rough assembly, rough cut uh, before he started really doing some scoring. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, I'd say good 9.5 out of 10 times. I was like, that's pretty much exactly what I would like to have had there or even better yeah. than what I, I had envisioned there. And it's the same thing with uh, with my co-director, Raymond Jelly, who isn't here today. You know, he felt the same way. He was like, your brother's always right on point with music. Yeah. And uh, we didn't expect anything less. So you really set the bar high for the next project, John? I don't know if you know <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. <laughs> but yeah, just to elaborate on what he said, and you, you talked about the Cohen brothers earlier, and mm -hmm. you got the Farrelly's, and you got so many different um, you know, brother tandems. And it is odd, as he said, and I can't emphasize this enough, on the 48-hour film projects, I mean, a lot of these um, filmmakers would just use canned music or... Um, you know, and things like that. But we truly scored them in 48 hours as well as I didn't pre-write anything. You know, he would call me after, for those not familiar with the way the 48 hour film project works, you go like at 6 p.m. and you get your um, genre of the film you have to make. And then you have 48 hours to write it and shoot it and edit it and score it and all those good things. So he would call me like eight o'clock saying we got you know, horror comedy or we got drama or whatever it is. And here's my idea for what we're going to do with it. So I would start kicking ideas around in my brain. Mm -hmm. And then the next day after they've shot it, you know, he would say, I need approximately X number of seconds of this and that. And I would write that stuff and, and give it to him. And it was extremely uncanny how it fit together. Like yeah. I actually watched it and it's just, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. <laughs> I just think it's that brotherly connection. And as musicians, guitar player and drummer, um, we have that same kind of vibe. You just kind of know, just like the Van Halens and you know all the musical brothers you have out there. It's just, it's a sixth sense that unless you have it and experience, you just you know can't. That so, was actually one of the questions I had for you was how has working together in bands as musicians helped with that synergy? Oh, but 
extremely well, actually. Um, we get along 95% of the time, but when we don't, it's we hit a, we hit a wall. <laughs> but uh, it doesn't happen very often. Yeah. We are two different types of people, you know, personality-wise. Mm -hmm. But you play off of each other. Yeah, but I, I think we definitely, you know, what I'm strong at, you know. Uh, you suck at. Yeah. Well, but he. <laughs> I saw how he paused. He <laughs> said it, John. Not me. How do I say this without fair saying? Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but no, it's it's like a puzzle piece almost. You know. It, we complement each other very well on what we do, both you know musically and uh, and within the film realm, if you will. Yeah, what's really interesting, and, and I even John Weathers and my wife and other people and everything, is he and I are about eighty percent exactly the same, but the twenty percent is so <laughs> radically different. That I am the calmest, most level-headed. Uh, logical person you will meet and, and I am not he's got the Irish temper and uh, no, I don't, yeah, that's right. it is just <laughs> there's different sides of us that are totally opposite but the core is so much similar that it's a good compliment because obviously yeah. there are drawbacks to being cold precise and logical like Spock <laughs> you know you need to have some fire and passion and emotion sometimes yeah. uh, when the situation calls for so it. I guess I'm the Kirk to his Spock that's exactly so you need that there's a reason all these buddy movies that Lone Ranger has Tonto and and that's kind of where we are. We we agree at the core. We have just enough differences to complement well. I think that's why you guys were so successful and able to do this on such a small budget and so quickly. This isn't something, as we said earlier, that you shot in your backyard. Well, you did the, the first piece in your <laughs> first backyard. piece in the back. But I mean, whenever you get that stereotype of I filmed it in my backyard with a video camera, this is not what this is. You had people that had worked on some pretty big projects because Pittsburgh's become a little bit of a mecca for for film. And uh, you have some really good talent out there, and you guys had the connections to do that. Yeah, glad you brought that up, because our budget for the film, it's funny, originally we said, what's the bare minimum we can make this film for? <laughs> and our first number was, we did the spreadsheets and crunched everything out. We can we can do it in nine days, 11 is a safety net, and we can do it for $20,000. And Boy, everyone, were we wrong. Everyone laughed at us, and, <laughs> and they were clearly right, because it ultimately took about 18 days, full days, and well, it did take 18 full days, and the budget came in just south of 50000 when all was said and done. So it was, we were significantly off, and a lot of that was, you know, being first-time feature filmmakers, there was lots of things we could not anticipate <clears throat> that, you know, cold hard truth was, the weather yeah. was not our friend, and right. just... We had to give scenes the attention they deserved, or they were going to either suffer performance-wise, or be out of focus, or you know, a thousand other things weren't going to make the scenes usable. So we had to slow down and go much slower than we uh, we had expected on that. We had actors in from out of town who <clears throat> couldn't stay, you know, for the full 18 days, so we have to change our shooting schedule to accommodate them. But <clears throat> to, to, back to your main point, the reason we were still able to do it for an absurdly low fifty thousand dollars. Now, keep in mind, this is a horror movie mm -hmm. with. Fairly extensive special effects, an ensemble cast of over 20 actors that have lines in the film, mm -hmm. and a full crew and everything else, and we still kept the budget down. The reason was, is because of the friendships and connections we made over the years, we were able to have people as favors to us come in at a discount. Yeah. So we got high-quality crew and high-quality talent at a discount. Now, next time we might not be so lucky. But, <laughs> we uh, won't be. And I'm completely fine with that because if this film's successful, I want to take care of the people that took care of us. Right. You know, they deserve to be paid and compensated right. for that. And I, I want to touch on one thing he said. That sure. There was like 20, it's an ensemble cast of 20 actors. And if we could change one thing it, to go back and change one thing, it would probably be not to do that, especially <laughs> on our first film because... Uh, 
Boy, it's really tough to, uh, you know, for scheduling and, and, and just keeping the story going and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, my running joke was, you know, when we, were, we would have to move from one scene to another and then John would walk up and say, you know, we got to move this along because we got to shoot such and such because they got to go somewhere and they, they got to get on a plane. Yeah. And I would just look at everybody and say, who the hell wrote this thing? And it was me, <laughs> of course. So yeah. That's funny. Well, one of the things in the casting process, we, we spent... Uh, several weeks on the casting for the film mm -hmm. and we had certain people in mind for certain roles but we weren't committed to anything we, we truly went in with a blank slate because who you cast in one role has a domino effect on who you plug into other roles because you have things like husband and wife have to look like they're actually a couple and maybe mm -hmm. their child is age appropriate for them and yeah. uh, we did try to stick to local Pittsburgh talent as much as possible um, but we were open to casting a worldwide net if we had to. Yeah. And we were fortunate to have um, you know, several people that have worked on big films. Um, Danielle Lazo was in the film, and she was in movies such as Legion and The Eye. Mm -hmm. She was in uh, the Sarah Connor Chronicles on, on Fox. Oh, yeah, that's and right. I think she was the lead in like six different indie films last year. For first-time filmmakers to get someone with that resume that's more impressive than ours was certainly a big coup. Yeah. Um, we had Tiffany Zhang from China actually come in um, to film one day, and she's kind of a big soap opera star in China. Okay. So we she's had kind a, of a big deal over there. Yeah. <laughs> what a big deal in China? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so it means nothing to people here, but we did bring her in. But most importantly, though, we gave a lot of people their very first chance to yeah. be in a feature film. I thought that was really cool. You took the time to work with people that had a desire and interest. Because I think not only did that work out for you, because you got people that were working for you and giving you a deal on what they were being paid. But right. you also gave people an opportunity to try something out, launch a career, that type of thing. Yeah, that was truly, uh, if Chris wants to tag on to it, I mean, that was a huge bonus um, from our perspective of getting people coming in young and hungry that were, they were talented, but they just never had the showcase to show what they could do. And we were able to offer that to them. Yeah. And we're very grateful. And they showed a lot of that gratitude back. Yeah. It, and being the writer, I pictured characters a certain way. Right. You know, everybody kind of looked exactly how I, or close enough to how I pictured them. I, if I had to explain it, I'd say like, you know, uh, the Lord of the Rings, when everybody they cast mm -hmm. pretty much looked like what I pictured when I read the books. Okay, I gotcha. I, I don't think we could have cast it any better. And everybody, both cast and crew, was just amazing. Yeah, you had a great crew, too. And, you know, yeah. and that's one of the things that for most viewers, they don't really think about the crew that's behind it. I mean, right. the actors are the big names, the talent. But without the crew, the talent doesn't get to look as good as they do. Yeah, and to talk about the crew, I mean, we can't tip our caps enough to our crew because the film simply would have failed without them. Um, we had eight full-time crew that worked on the film, mm -hmm. and that meant they were there day in, day out for all 18 days, and anything less than a 12-hour day is not realistic. Our days were 12 yeah. to 16-hour days <laughs> every day, and we did it nine days in a row, which is also very grueling and something we would not do if we could do it again but because of time constraints and people are going to take off work from the real life and, and and whatnot we had no choice but to kind of squeeze it in there when we could right um but yeah the crew was certainly our backbone everybody was just worth their weight in gold and then some everybody wore multiple hats yeah there are a lot of people out there that want to be a writer or want to make a movie or want to make a tv show 
but it was probably what two or three times as, as difficult as you probably thought it was going to be, <laughs> at least, and then some. <laughs> and that's not that we're joking and laughing, but we're not joking. After the first the uh, first two days of shooting at, at Overbrook School, yeah, I just you know was thinking to myself, what the hell did I get myself into? <laughs> Yeah. And uh, I was really surprised that everybody showed up for the third day <laughs> of filming. <laughs> yeah. And, so, uh, but yeah, everybody did show up. So what gave you that motivation? What kept it from being a project that just got lost wandering around in the woods? I would say, personally, it would be my brother, actually. Um, oh, he, thank you. Yeah, he always... Uh, He's, he's seen me more than anyone at my worst, as well as, my, as at my best. So now I'm picturing, because I'm, I like stories too, I'm picturing you in the corner crying, rocking back and forth, and John just being, Get up, you pussy! <laughs> I wish. It was you can't way. win, Rock! <laughs> Come on, get in there! <laughs> Nothing quite that uh, cinematic or... Uh, Cut him! <laughs> no, it's just, uh, I mean, it goes for both of us. It's just, you have to have... To make a bad, bad uh, reference and fun movie puns to talk about Rocky, you gotta have the eye of the tiger. Yes. Where you just simply cannot, failure is not an option, that you just keep going until you are stopped or dead. Yeah. And once we committed to it, there was no way we were gonna not finish the film. Right, especially when you have people who gave you money to make this film. <laughs> they would like to make that, at least make that money back. Yeah. Right, you have investors and you have crew that you're committed to and you have people, you know that are excited to get into this film and now the film's going to end up on the cutting room floor and never go anywhere and honestly that happens to a lot if not most you know indie type films right. because budget falls through and a thousand things go wrong as we experience so just finishing a film is a small miracle in itself but at the end of the day it just comes down to keeping your wits about you and being prepared to take every blow that's thrown your way and there'll be a lot of blows thrown your way <laughs> from places you have no idea they're coming from and you just have to solve and conquer and keep pressing forward right now you mentioned that this was your dream a long time ago and you went into the military and life mm -hmm. happened and things changed um do you think if you had tried to do this earlier that you would have been able to succeed no no and, and i'll tell you why it mainly because as an artist you grow and you learn and you never stop growing and learning and you become better at your craft you know as long as you put the time in i wouldn't have been ready artistically creatively and mentally i definitely wouldn't have been ready i during filming of what we went through with mm -hmm. this film if i had done that in my 20s i would have had a nervous breakdown <laughs> i, I might have ran away so you'd be <laughs> never to be seen again back and forth yeah that's funny. Yeah, it's funny that he brings that up. I'll, I'll kind of pull us off on a tangent that I think... Uh, oh, we like tangents here. It, it's it a makes, nice story. It makes good radio. Um, to go back into our backstory a little bit further, Chris and I, as he alluded to earlier, and at first we started off, it was him first, and then I kind of got pulled in, not unwillingly. It's like, hey, I want to write these scripts. Will you read it and everything? And I get sucked in, you know, being mm. a creative person as well we decided we wanted to write scripts and try to sell them and get into the industry that way. So back in the mid-2000s, we actually wrote several uh, full-length screenplays. Oh, and, I like this story. And we actually had a mentor of sorts, Ray Murphy Jr., Eddie Murphy's cousin. Awesome. And at one time, he was president, I believe, of Eddie Murphy Enterprises. Eddie and Murphy Productions. Eddie yes. Murphy Productions. He was actually in the scene, one of the scenes in Coming to America, He's standing Great next movie. to Eddie when uh, the, he's the prince and king back in, uh, in Africa and everything. So, what is that? That was it. Ray kind of took us <laughs> under under yeah. his wing and mentored us, but also partnered with us. Um, he shared some story ideas that he had that we wrote screenplays for and treatments mm -hmm. for and and everything else. And we wrote a script. He had an investor on board. 
and it looked like all systems were go to make this movie. We were yeah. at the point of drawing up contracts so he could purchase the script from us and everything else. We had an article in the Post-Gazette. They interviewed us. And it was that close. You could taste it. And we were both in jobs that, you know, we were burned out in. And, yeah. and you couldn't help but emotionally put yourself into this and say, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. We're so close. <laughs> and then it ended up that the funding went away and poof. Yeah, that happens quickly. The rug was pulled out underneath us, and it was like a stake through the heart. Yeah. And it really derailed us for many years because yep. it hurt so bad that, for lack of a better term, failure, that we didn't want to get back on the horse because we know how much it hurt to fall off the horse. Yeah. And it really set us back in terms of where we might have been. But with that time came a maturity, as he alluded to. Yeah. And it made us stronger and made us realize, hey, we can do this. We're better prepared for it now. So going into this, we had a much more realistic approach where, yeah, we're not going to fail. We're not going to let ourselves fail, but we're prepared. If we absolutely do, yeah. you know, we know how to handle it better. And that really gave us a lot of resiliency. Yeah. Uh, it's, I see it through. it's like, we're not going to get excited until we, you know, that's a wrap on the film. Yeah. And we have, you know, we go through the footage and see we have a film. You know, we have something that actually might be good. Right. <laughs> the greatest compliment that, that we have received, and we received it a lot, which is great, is, wow, that looks like a movie. <laughs> and well, thank, you. thank God for that. <laughs> because, I mean, to, to be serious about yeah. it, people expect, as we you know talked about earlier, you have a couple people in the backyard with a camcorder making a movie. Yeah, exactly. That's and the stereotype. The, the acting to be terrible, and they expect the video to be shaky and... You know, just to be a discombobulated mess. Yeah. Um, and when they actually see it and it looks professional and it looks like a high quality indie movie, it's like, wow, that's that the, looks real. Yeah. And that's exactly what we want to hear. And that's the same the same thing we got from people who, you know, just visited the set. Like, you know, if their kids were, you know, in, in the school scenes or something, you know, friends of ours and they show up and then they see this to them looks like a big production. You yeah. Know? Well, you know what I thought was neat is I know these that a lot of the people that worked on the project, especially the, the crew, were friends of yours. Yes. Right. Um, but they were 100% professional when they were yes. on the set. And that was that's a big difference. Yeah, and to your point about friends helping out, we also had a lot of production assistants. And for those not familiar with the movie lingo and what a production assistant is, they're just basically an unpaid volunteer. Yeah. If you talk, we talk about our crew, our paid crew, how critical they were. The PAs were no less vital. We had some PAs that were there almost every single day of filming, never made a dime. They ate for free. We tried to feed them well. They got a free T-shirt. <laughs> right. You know, so they, and they got a credit in the film, obviously, right. for their work. But having that volunteer force to help out with the film, just because they were our friends, some of them never worked on a film before, and they wanted to help us out and learn how this film stuff worked. Right. And many other ones we never met even until maybe a week before the film started, and they just do it for the love of film. Any milestones coming up? Anything that you you got going on that you want people to know about? That's a good question. Well, really, the movie has consumed our life for over the past year. Yeah. Um, two years for me. Yeah, we did. To give a hat tip, um, the original short, The Other Side, actually won the first Pittsburgh Zombie Shorts Film Festival put on by Confluence Productions. And there was actually submissions um, from Europe. I think it was from uh, England in particular that, that sent them over. Mm -hmm. And our short actually was fortunate enough to win. I think we... Wow. Wrote and shot that like within a week right before the deadline. Yeah. So it was kind of a rush job. Nice. 
but we got so much good feedback from that short. It's a great short. You guys have kind of buried it as much as possible, right? Yeah, yeah. because there's a twist ending that we want to keep the maintain the integrity of for the feature film. I definitely exactly. would like to put that on a DVD or Blu-ray, though, as a bonus. Yeah, yeah. That, I think that should be. You know, once once the movie's big, it's going to be a collector's item, right? Yes. Um, yeah, but we we actually use that feedback from that and. Part of the prize of winning that was you got your short screen at the Erie Film Festival up in Erie. Uh, okay. And we actually had complete strangers contact us after seeing it there because we were unable to attend due to a band commitment. Yeah, that's um, huge. So we couldn't even see it, which yeah. we were very disappointed. But they enjoyed it so much, they contacted us out of the blue. And then we got it into the Kansas City as a Panic Fest. Panic Fest, yeah. Um, and it was one of the, I think there was only seven shorts that they, they selected to be featured in that film festival. Mm-hmm. And they, they gave up uh, prizes to the top two, and we were third. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, that's, but still, a three out of seven Absolutely. out of a very narrow list was, you know, nothing to sneeze at. So right. that's what inspired us to say, how can we make this a feature film? And it probably took us about four to six months to really come up with the idea because, let's face it, taking a seven-minute short and stretching it into nine to 100 minutes, the reason most movies are shitty is because they don't put that time in. Yeah, uh, they just say, oh, well, you know, we'll just stretch it out. And that's, we wanted to truly build a universe around it and make it a viable film. And we spent just in the uh, germination stage of talking just over beers and, you know, yeah. being family is another advantage. You know, we go right. hang out at family functions and you talk for hours about it. And what about this? What about that? And then finally, uh, I'll let yeah. him talk about the inspiration night yeah. where the script came together. And being a writer yourself, Dan, I'm sure you've had that, that moment where you're getting, uh-huh ready, moment? Yes. you're getting ready to go to sleep and then you're like, oh, and then you get up and then you're right. Like Christopher walking there. Oh, you get oh up. you're talking to me all wrong. <laughs> what are you doing over there? <laughs> and you get up and you write all night long. And, yeah. you know, it was like I got my kids off to school and I kept writing until about 9 or 10 a.m., you know, and sent the script out, went to sleep for a few hours and woke up to, wow, this is really close to what I think we should we should be doing. One of our friends, acquaintances that Chris knows really well is Jamie Nash, who is a you know established screenwriter in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's done uh, VHS 2 and involved with Blair Witch and lots of other things. Jamie, actually, early on in the process, offered to give us notes on the script once we had it together. Oh, wow. you got to take advantage of that. Absolutely. So we sent it off to him, and he kind of, for lack of a term, he did shred it apart in a very constructive way, which is exactly what we wanted, brutal honesty. And another advantage of being brothers is we can be brutally honest with each other and not take it personal. And, of course, you get frustrated, you know, as a writer, and you can see him rolling his eyes sometimes. He felt something was perfect, and it's like, no, it sucks, or it doesn't doesn't work, or whatever. (laughs) This is the 5% you were talking about. Yeah, this is it. And you step back, and it's like, you know what? Yeah, you're right. And we go back to the drawing board, and there's things that he'll passionately defend, as he should. And, you know... Both sides prove whatever they're trying to prove, and you, you get the best product in the end. And I right. think we work well in that sense as a team uh, where we can add little nuances to each other, and I can see things that he can't and vice versa. And um, mm-hmm. I think one of our things, and he can totally disagree with us if he wants, I think one of our big strengths is, is Chris is really good at taking a blank page to creating a world and a universe and characters and a story. And I think that I kind of see the common threads or what's missing in that and try to plug those gaps or give more detail maybe to some characters and make the world a little more vibrant. I would agree with that, yeah. It's hard whenever you're the one creating it sometimes to see what you're missing. Right. Because you're so close to it. Yes. It, it takes somebody else with a second set of eyes that knows the way you work to come in and go, 
Well, what you were trying to say here was this. Right. Because I think that's the difference between someone that knows the way you work and someone that doesn't. If you have a complete stranger come in, they're going to be like, well, this just doesn't work. I don't know why. Yeah. But knowing how you work, your brother can come in and say, okay, I see what you were trying to say here, and this is where you're missing a piece. Right. And that's that's the puzzle piece thing, you know, where it fits together. Like, my strengths and his strengths really just blend together perfectly, you know, as that harmonious yeah and to go back to my um spock analogy earlier you know being the cold <laughs> hard logic meld one, with them i'm i'm really a stickler for people behaving with the proper motivations and why would somebody do that it makes no sense right and we try to avoid the horror cliches and all these you know little things so really used we really spent a lot of time on the backstory of a lot of these characters and flushed out this whole universe you're using the iceberg principle where you have 100% of an iceberg, but only 20% of it is above the water and revealed, right. but the other 80% is still there underneath the water supporting that 20%. Yeah. So there's a lot of backstory to these characters that we worked out that aren't even in the film, yeah. but it allowed them to behave and be consistent yeah. in a logical fashion that really helped tighten the story up. All the other things that, I mean, let's face it, it's Pittsburgh. It's right. the home of zombies. Yeah. You know, that's, Thanks to John Russo. Absolutely, John Russo, you know, thank you so much. Pittsburgh's iconic for zombies, and yeah. people make pilgrimages here to go see Monroeville Mall for a reason, because that movie changed their life, you know, as a horror fan yeah. and everything else, and that's, you know, that's not hyperbole, that's true. That's yeah. one reason Kevin Smith filmed here, actually. Was, Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, we, we expect to get a good reception on the film here locally, obviously, based on the subject matter. And the amount of people that worked on it. But, uh, and you guys have a little bit of a fan base already from from other projects. You want to you want to mention Colleagues? Um, yeah, we can talk about our music projects. Um, as you as we talked about earlier, I didn't say the A word. Um, as we allude awesome. to <laughs> allude. Yeah, totally 80s is totally awesome. <laughs> uh, we're in several bands. Um, probably the biggest band that's most well known in the city is Totally 80s, which is an 80s tribute band. Where we dress up like ridiculous fools from the 80s with the wigs <laughs> and spandex and. You guys have uh, have a pretty have a pretty decent following, and it's not just in Pittsburgh. It's it's uh... we do. I mean, we our Facebook page is over six thousand likes, and that's how you, you're gauged by success these days. Is how many likes do you have yeah, on your Facebook? How many people page? like your Facebook? How page? many Twitter followers? You know, that's everything today. Is those little metrics that you use? Yeah, six thousand for a cover slash tribute band is pretty impressive, mm -hmm. and we we tour regionally, um, mm -hmm. and we play music, and we grew up in the '80s, so. We like most of what we play. A lot of it, you know, <laughs> we'd rather not. Yeah. But it's all about giving the people what they want and giving right. them a good time. And that's what that's entertainment... Right. You know, it's always important to give the fans what they want. Yeah. I don't care if you're a writer, a movie maker, a musician, whatever. Ultimately, your goal is to entertain folks and let them forget about their problems for a little bit and take them into a different world. And even cheesy 80s cover music can do that. Right. People can come out and have some beers and go back 20 years to their glory days and right. forget their problems that their mortgage is behind or whatever. And that's, <laughs> yeah. that's doing a valuable public service. So right. we do our best to provide the best experience we can in that regard. So that carries over to our film and everything else. Anything we do, we try to do the best of our ability and take it serious. Mm -hmm. And uh, the music side of it is no different. And, and we chose the eighties mainly because it's timeless. You know, everybody, we get kids out there 21st birthday and they're out there singing Jesse's Girl. Yeah. You know, and, and they know it from their parents or they, you know, or just from movies in general. I know what they saw in Maze, but I like it. <laughs> and they, uh, you know, everybody seems to enjoy it. Uh, I guess it, it's kind of like the new oldies. Yeah. You know, 
We're well, you know, it, it, it's our generation that's yeah. basically wanting to be young again right. is part of it. You know, I always thought that'd be funny. Even whenever I was growing up in the 80s, I was thinking, you know, someday we're going to be in old folks' homes. And we're going to be sitting around listening to Kiss and Rat and right. <laughs> all these hair bands. Well, another, another thing about the 80s, and people make fun of the 80s, and rightfully so in a lot of ways. But there was actually a lot of very technically complex and challenging music in the 80s. Oh, very, uh, yeah, those guys that play those are very... There's a lot of virtuoso guitar players and drummers and, and everything else. And in our band, we have to cover all the genres and all the styles and all these songs. And right. for every so-called you know cheesy, simple song, I mean, he brought Jesse's Girl. Jesse's Girl is actually a fairly complex pop song. Yeah. Um, for those that aren't musicians, you'd be surprised what's going on in that song musically. And just a total random piece of trivia... Um, a lot of people don't know that the guitar solo on that song was performed by Neil Gerardo, who was the guitarist for Pat Benatar. We just resurrected a song we haven't played in a while, Danger Zone by Kenny Loggins. Oh yeah, it's a great song. And it's, but it's difficult to play because it, there's so many changes in it that you know the average music listener wouldn't get. Right. And uh, it's it's a difficult song to remember, <laughs> especially at our age. You know, the memory yeah. starts going, but there's changes for no reason whatsoever. And damn you, Kenny Loggins, is all I could ever say. <laughs> well, an interesting thing, I don't know if you've had this in your podcast, it might be for season two, could be an interesting thing to dissect, is how many musicians and rappers become actors and vice versa. There's actually a very large crossover, and I think it all comes from the same need of simple expression and creation, that uh, you know, music is one way to write, and uh, you know, acting is another way to express yourself or to write or create a character. Yeah, it's all about and story. It's yeah. all ultimately about story and presenting it in a different way. So you see a lot of that crossover, and that's kind of where you know we fall in with the film and the music. Mm -hmm. They're both our passions, and there's really a lot in common with each other because at the end of the day, a song is just a short story. And <clears throat> we've been in bands, we've written music, you know, performed our own music. You do that, you play to like 10 or 15 people most of the time. Right. Uh, you know, you play in uh, with Totally 80s, you know, we play at uh, Jurgles in the North Hills and we pack in four or 500 oh, yeah. people. So They treat you like rock stars there. Yeah, I know. And stage diving. That's, I've seen the pictures <laughs> of, of, of the crowd there. It's, it's something else. So the music side is not, we don't have any long-term aspirations or, you know, we're not trying to make it or get a record deal or anything like that. You know, at our age, we're just about having fun and expressing ourselves yeah. and blowing off steam. But it does keep the creative juices flowing. Right. And I think that's very important, you know, for any artist, you know, always be moving forward. You know, if you're not moving forward, it means you're standing still. Right. And uh, it keeps us going and it gives us our sanity. And, and uh, but I think long-term... You know, we certainly want to have this film be as successful as it can be. Mm -hmm. Give it all the attention it needs to get there. We're not trying to rush it, but we're trying to to keep it moving forward. And uh, hopefully, there'll be many more to follow. So, where can uh, people find you guys if they want to find out more about the film or your other projects? Um, well, for the band, um, the website is totes80s.com. T-O-T-E-S-80-S.com. Totes, like in totally. Nice. Um, or on Facebook. Um, Totes McGoats. Totes McGoats. Just Facebook.com slash uh, Totally80sBand is uh, the URL there. You can see where we're playing and all that jazz. Um, for the movie, it's Facebook. It's OPP, the other side. OPP standing for Orchard Place Productions. And not other people's property. <laughs> or other things that we could go into there. But, uh, we're not going to lay down a whole rap on you here. So that is where you can find uh, information on the movie. We have links to the trailer out there. 
Uh, we try to have some throwback Thursdays and throw some pictures from when we were filming um, so you can see some kind of behind the scenes things along that line. We also release um, music from the film as the bands are putting together um, lyric videos or you know promo videos mm-hmm. with their songs or uploading them to their band camp or whatever sites. We try to share that and promote those bands as well. Nice. So those are the, the two main places to find anything about us. Our website, Forge Replace Productions, is in development. Okay. It has been for quite some time. It has. We've had other priorities, so it's not really as important just yet, but it's getting close uh, <laughs> yeah. as we approach distribution. And also a, a web page, um, website for the movie. We want to have a you know, detailed site breaking down uh, you know, the movie and without spoiling anything, you know, right. introduction to the characters and market the film very well from that perspective. Are you guys on uh, Internet Movie Database yet? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Him talk more about yeah. That. Yeah. The film is there as in post-production. There are a lot of other sides, though, on yeah. IMDb. Yeah. So you have to make sure you find the right one. You can always search for us. Uh, but if you, you know, only if you can spell our last name. I'll spell it right in the show notes. Good. good. Perfect. Copy, paste, IMDb, done. That's right. <laughs> you can just put the link in there, too. Yeah. Imagine that technology. I know. It's fantastic. If only we could. It's phenomenal. <laughs> so I got one last question for you. Why did the zombie cross the road? To get to the other side. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Hey, I appreciate you guys coming by and hanging out with me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having us. It was a great time. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. No problem. You've been listening to the Ninth Story Podcast. A hicks and fabulous production. I want to thank all of you for supporting the show and tuning in and listening to us babble on and on and on and on for season one. We have some great things coming up for season two. Craig, you want to add anything? No, no, I don't. You don't want to say anything at all, Robin. You got nothing to say. (laughs) That's my Barry Gibb. That's me imitating Jimmy Fallon, imitating Barry Gibb. That's awesome. That's a great way to end season. What's one? I will put you in the crown. <laughs> What's one big thing? Stop you want? interrupting me, Dan. Put an end to you. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. What, what's one big thing that you want to do in season two? Anything? I want to do a bunch of big things in season two. If you could harmonize with me, you could jump we'll right do in. Do a big thing for season two. For season two. What do I want to do for season two? I don't know. I mean, we're going to put some stuff on STRY radio together. Yes, though. we are. We're going to do that. We're going to try to um, try to incorporate some different music elements into the program for season two. I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. So I'm going to try to, you know, add some original music to uh, both the, the nine story and to STRY. Yeah. Looking forward to that. You and I have, have kicked around. Um, you know, I got a couple of stories that I'm working on. Yeah. Um, we, we've got some great guests coming up. Um, I know early on in season two, we've got uh, our old buddy Steve Matikos coming on. Yes. Uh, for, for at least one, maybe two episodes. You know, who knows? We'll see what we can do with him. And we're getting a lot of great support from the friends and family. Yes. Um, a lot of people who have said, hey, I'll come on and talk with you Nimrods about whatever <laughs> the hell you want to talk about for right. an hour or so. So, you know. Go to Facebook, like our page. It's Facebook forward slash 
or backslash. I yeah, don't know. and if you it's uh, slash something ninth story. If you're a creative individual and you want to come on here and talk about something, you know, pitch an idea to Dan, pitch an idea to me. If you want to um, tell us why we're great or why we suck, send us an email feedback at absolutely.com. Yeah. If you tell us that we suck, then I'm going to put you in the ground. <laughs> that's terrific. Yeah, that's good. That's good stuff. I oh, was, wait a minute. What was that? I just heard. Did you hear that voice? <laughs> I did. What did if, it say? It, I don't know. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. Where was that? Where is that coming from? I don't know. It's not Victoria's voice. I know that. I don't know. Maybe we have a new <sighs> voice haunting our. She's our, bringing others with her now. Yeah. Maybe we'll hear more about that in season two. We could. What else we got? Send us emails. All right. Say thanks. goodnight, Gracie. Goodnight, Gracie. I need you to come over here and powder my balls. <laughs> nice.